Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, this is Anthony. And this is episode 388, Designer Top 10, Richard Garfield. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, friends, we are back and we are talking about, in fact, one of the greatest tabletop game designers of all time, the legend himself, Richard Garfield. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, even if he'd quit after his first game, he'd still be up there. So, <laughs> one of those guys, every now and then you get somebody who's like, they only have to do one game, but you know, they obviously love what they're doing. So they keep going. You've got yeah. Garfield, Toyber, Alan Moon, and mm. you know, they keep, keep pumping stuff out anyways. Yeah. That's crazy. I guess it's a passion. That's really what you want because it's it's about doing the work instead of the outcomes concerned. I mean, for us, it's like you've done a lot of really impressive things. You could probably lay down and take a nap. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> nope, I'm still doing things, bro. So yeah. on this episode, we will be talking about all of the super hot, crazy games from Richard Garfield, many that you know, and I'm, and I'm guaranteeing you several that you don't know. So I think it's always important to remember that they have such an amazing ludology here. And I think it's something to just definitely bring to the table because if you like one of his games, you probably like several other of his games out there too. So this is always a very fun topic. But before we get into all that fun stuff, there's so much to talk about. Anthony, just a couple of weird little pop-ups that happened recently. One at PAX. That recently came up, which was Munchkin, everyone's favorite card game, or I probably should say one of my favorite family kind of card games. Not anyone else, but just me. Just me. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. That's okay. I got to have a thing. I got to have a vice, and it it happens to be Munchkin cards. It's fine. And they mentioned at PAX that they'll actually be coming out with a digital version of this game, which is kind of hilarious because... Munchkin, the famous card game from Steve Jackson, has been around forever. And I think they actually even had a little tiny training app that you could play on your phone just to learn how to play Munchkin, which again, is one of the simplest games of all time. Uh, It's actually a decent game. It just, at the end, it just, it goes off the rails most times. But that being said, basically the game itself, if you've never played Munchkin, it's it's a D&D I guess, tongue-in-cheek kind of game. You built up a character with class and race and weapons and everything's a joke. And Kolovic's artwork here really kind of sets everything off. And then you flip over a dark card. Typically, you get a monster. And then you use all your special abilities and things to take out the monster. Everyone else kind of works against you. That's the whole idea of being a munchkin in D&D is that there's always a player in your group that's always trying to steal the loot and probably stab you in the back. So everyone throws out bad stuff. And basically the game comes down to whoever hits level 10 at the end by defeating the final monster, which basically is everyone leaves everyone alone (laughs) until that final monster, until everyone gets like level nine and then everyone pulls out their cards. And that's typically what happens here. So it's good. Uh, Dire Wolf Digital will be bringing this out. So hopefully more people get to play this game. And... That's fun. It seems to be, at least from the images, a simple integration, nothing too crazy, nothing like broken. It's just basically the images on the cards and then you flip the things and you do things. So that's on the minor side. Now, Anthony, I think this is something that you might want to think about a little bit. We've talked about this recently, and I think I went on a bit of a rant that I feel the strange missing of having an addiction at this point (laughs) you know board gaming you think like hey he's got you gotta collect all the board games but eventually even that doesn't really have that same kind of thrill so i was like looking for like a collectible card game that would probably be a euro version of course i'm not getting that but you know let it never be said that disney doesn't want to make money because they always want to make money so anthony lorcana a trading card game from Disney utilizing all of the Disney properties, at least what they're stating at the moment. And it's going to be a collectible card game. What do you think? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? You, 
you kids didn't your kids didn't need a college fund, right? You you they they're fine. They'll find they'll be fine with their cards, right? <laughs> I'm not remotely interested in this, so my kids are safe. Um, okay, that's what you say, but you know, kids. Look, man, kids go down bad paths. You know, collectible card gaming is just is just the the, the worst of them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's not good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about this. I think like in general, these like big corporate synergy things. I just I can't help but be cynical about them. Like all these mm-hmm. video games. There's a video game right now. Everybody's playing like you fight each other with various Warner Brothers characters. Oh uh, like yeah, that's the new Scooby one. Versus Batman or something. <laughs> um, I've seen that one. Yeah. And it just all I see when I all I think of when I see that is that terrible, terrible Space Jam sequel, right? Mm, Where it's just like terrible. jam everything in. And look, aren't we cute? We're using references, and I, I don't know. So, <laughs> well, to be fair, that's how most shows are, you know, on streaming uh, is developed these days, right? I know, and it's becoming. It's not funny. It's not fun. <laughs> it's it's kind of sad. So I don't know. A card game, like maybe it won't be that. Maybe they'll integrate the themes really well and it'll be mm-hmm. like specific types of Disney characters and it'll make sense what they're doing, but I can just see it being whatever <laughs> because they have all these IPs and they sure. get Robinsberg the power to use them and they're going to go to town and it's, I don't know. Well, Robinsberg has been a, a good company over many years. Their games have typically been, I wouldn't say cheap, but they've definitely been reasonable in prices and they've always kind of stayed that way. They never really had an overly produced game that like just costs crazy money, but they've always been, you know, straight down the line. Obviously they've worked with Disney before. So the whole villainous game system has been a huge hit for them. And that again, that utilizes all the different Disney IPs from star Wars, all the Disney princesses and everything else that's been out there. And that's only growing. And it's actually a good system. I was actually, like you said, I was, when that came out, I was like, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be a joke. I'm like, damn it. It's a good game. Uh, <laughs> and they sell it in the big box stores. So it's yeah. it's not like something that you, you know, you couldn't stumble across. I think recently that a Star Wars one came out. And I was yeah. like, oh, man, I'm going to have to buy this. <laughs> I don't want to buy this. <laughs> but it's actually a pretty, a pretty decent game. So I'm looking forward to this because I think that they'll do a good job. This is, I guess, obviously very Kingdom Hearts or any of the other things where they just kind of, like you said, Anthony, they throw all the different IPs together. But, you know, the collectible card game market is a billion-dollar industry between Magic and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon and all of the others that are out there. I mean, it would be silly for Disney not to jump on this train, especially the collectible element. Just the blind booster packs are just going to make all the money. And there's so many disney adults out there too so this might bring them more into the hobby if they can collect cards but god willing i mean hopefully it's a good thing and not a bad thing where the secondary market becomes crazy because that's that's the dark side of these collectible card games where it's just like oh there's a rare card and now it's everything costs everything amounts of money now so i wish they would have done like a living a living card game where nothing was like exclusive and rare but they're going to go with the ccg yeah. So, um, and I don't think you're going to be able to avoid it. I think it's going to be one of those things, man. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. Everybody tries it. They all try to take a, a run at the throne, and it it doesn't. Mm. There's still just the two, right? It's Pokemon or Magic, and then you know, I guess Yu-Gi-Oh kind of sits on the periphery. Yeah. But, well, they they're called. You know, the game itself, at least the basic idea, is that there's a place called the Illuminary. And is a treasury of all the different Disney songs and stories ever made. IP integration here, right? All the characters, all the characters, and all of their worlds are placed in competition. And you, the player takes on the role of an illumineer. So kind of like a planeswalker, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> this powerful source. Yeah. This powerful saucer has the ability to bring these characters to life and It'll it'll be interesting. I mean, I think there's something very similar. Marvel is bringing out a Blizzard Hearthstone kind of clone that's supposed to be like playable in like eight minutes or something like that. So, I mean, again, you can't you can't trademark those mechanics. So those games are available to be created. So just slap on your own IP. Yeah, that no, makes sense. Mm-hmm. I. I could see this working really well. I could also see it not working really well. Mm-hmm. I, it remains to be seen. 
right. <laughs> where we're going to get out of this. Well, but, eventually like, we'll... Hopefully mm-hmm. Disney doesn't just give up on it, too. I feel like every time we get a halfway mm-hmm. decent CCG or collectible game, the developer realizes a year or two in how expensive it is to develop. Sure. And they give up. You know, I've, I've invested in a few over the last few years, and I'm just... I'm kind of out on them now because I'm tired of buying things and then having the game go under. Yeah. I think the big problem too, is like you, you get power creep, you know, yeah. it's like, how, how do you make the expansions worth buying? And mm-hmm. then every expansion is better than the previous one. And then, the, then the whole meta situation is eventually going to get broke because that's what people do. And you really need to hold tight reins on, you know, when cards get banned and all that kind of other f- fun stuff too. So I think that's true, Anthony. I think it's it's not so much about the game itself or the artwork or the mechanics. It's about the system that needs to be constantly kept up with and managed and supported and developed and tweaked constantly. I know even some video games too play like I used to play uh, real-time strategy games around the clock and then like one unit gets just randomly buffed or, you know there's some kind of minor change to a character or something. And then just like, it throws everything off. And you're just like, wait a minute, don't do that. Or even, even those arena battle games too, when they bring out new characters that you can purchase or play, they're always overpowered for like the first two, three weeks that they come into sale. And then eventually they bring those power levels down and like, okay, now that's useless. Now I can't play this character. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, imagine, I mean, I, I guess if this is, I guess if this works, you might see these kind of competitions in Disney World, Disneyland, you might, yeah. it might be a big part of their park. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see. Or like promo cards you can only get at the parks. Oh, jeez, man. It's crazy stuff for that kind of thing. <laughs> they do. Yeah. I think the, was it the popcorn buckets or something last year was a whole thing. So yeah. 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 Or like yeah. the, whatever Pokemon cards are at McDonald's and people start punching mm. each other at the park. <laughs> <laughs> Reference, reference, reference. You'll buy the references. Remember berries. <laughs> just buy remember berries. It's cool. All right. Well, that's just some of the kind of the oddities that are going out there. So we'll bring you more news as those things come out and keep you up to date on all the fun that's happening out there and when, where and when you could sell a kidney so you could buy those new uh, Disney cards. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that's going on in the board game industry, at least the oddities, so to speak. What's going on with our friends on our question of the week? All right. Question of the week uh, this week is uh, what are the most important elements of a game day to set the ambiance? Ooh, ambiance. Music, food, lighting, basically everything but the game. Sure. Uh, so got a, a bunch of good answers here. So thank you to everybody who wrote in. Yeah. Uh, Willie, Willie says, I find that the most important thing is setting the space as a game day space. Put mm. away the work, stuff, put away the chores and unrelated hobbies. Instead, put out some games you expect might work with the group. When people walk in and see games, they'll be excited to play. You start the day off on the right foot. When they walk in and see you on the laptop just finishing one more work thing, they feel like they are interrupting and all of that excitement is lost. Yes. Yeah, don't don't make your friends wait because you got to finish an email when they show up. (laughs) Be ready to play. Yep, dedicated space is perfect. Uh. Let's see. Tom says a mostly dedicated game space. There you go. With ample lighting. Uh, if the game is pre-selected, then have the game set up and ready to go. Putting the focus on the game. If the plan is to play a specific game, some background music can help set the tone. I usually try to find a Spotify playlist for the game we're playing. Note music should be audible, but not too loud. Sure. I always uh, found that really hard. I always thought music should always be included when you're playing a game. Like, just just enough that you could hear it but not overwhelming and yet at the same time it i just never seem to get it to work really well even when the board game itself includes like a, some sort of soundtrack it always just seems to be something that like gets in the way for some reason i really would love to have music more incorporated yeah yeah i had my friend michael back in pittsburgh he would always play music um while we were playing and I would never think about it. And then he would finally, he would turn it on at some point. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is nice because there are long stretches, especially in certain games where you can't really talk to each other a ton sure. outside of the game because you're either paying attention or mm-hmm. you don't want to distract the person who's thinking. Um, and so it's nice to have something. Otherwise you're just sitting there in silence, which is mm-hmm. less than comfortable. 
It's true. Uh, next up, we have Darren, who says, organization, people should get there on time. <laughs> <laughs> a good way you decide which game to play, and the person who teaches the game knows how to play it well. Um, and of course, the space is clean and away from distractions. So Darren's like, keep that stuff on track. <laughs> <laughs> Darren locks it down, bro. Nice. Yeah, don't be late and know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, Charlie says, good company is essential. If you don't enjoy the people you're with, there is no point. So, uh, I'm with you there, Charlie. I, I've i been to game groups before just because I wanted to play something and then wondered after the fact, like, why was I there? <laughs> why did I do that? Um, and then David says, I agree with all the sentiment, sentiments shared so far. The people are probably the most important element. They can make or break the experience. Yes. So uh, kind of in line with Charlie's answer there. I I agree with everything. I mean, it's I have not hosted games at my place in a very long time because mm. of children and pets and all the things that come with that. I'm usually going elsewhere. But when I do, I yeah, I try to make sure whatever room is the game is happening, it's cleared away. There's no toys or dog stuff or whatever, just like cluttering everything, like completely clear table, which if you don't have children <laughs> is nearly impossible ever the table always has stuff on it except on game days um decent lighting make sure you can see everything well you know it's not gonna be crazy loud or crazy obnoxious but yeah just like a dedicated space i think that's the most important thing is just being able to sit down and not feel like you're in somebody else's way or stuff's about to fall on you you know yeah i i think there i think everyone's just nailed it but you know everything from food to music to location to you know, timing, I I think generally setting the tone as early as possible, even before people get there is essential. So let them know what games are going to be played or make that decision with the group in advance. And if the game is heavy, give, you know, let them know at least enough in advance so that they can at least check out the rules or check out a video, because I think that there's nothing that nothing more that crushes the game setting kind of location when everyone gets there and you're not sure what you're doing. Someone has read the rule book. The other people haven't, doesn't know what to do. Uh, So yeah, I think setting the tone as early as possible, right? I think that's really helpful and, you know, it lends itself to the positive gaming experience. So yeah. And also good chairs. I'm just going to throw good chairs in there because I guess chairs. You can deal with bad tables. You can deal with too small tables. You can deal with weird tables, like different elevations and stuff like that. Like you can typically move stuff around. But if you're going to be sitting for any amount of time and the chairs are bad, oh, that is not a good, that is not a good time. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's always so weird when you see those gaming tables come up for sale and you're like, oh, that looks a really cool gaming table. And that looks like a terrible chair. I know. Yeah. You know? Oh, jeez. So bad. All right. So if you'd like to join the conversation and set up that game setting also perfectly, then join us each and every week for our question of the week where we talk about the latest and greatest in board gaming. You can reach us on all social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the different places. Boardgamersanonymous.com. That's our website for all the great things that you want to know about and keep track of where we are and what we're doing. Awesome. All right, everyone. So that's what's going on with all of you out there. So let's talk about the games that we want to get the table. Anthony, we're setting a great game night and the great game night comes with some great games. So in the future, so to speak, what games do you want to have the table? What's your acquisition disorder? All right. Acquisition disorder. So this one, I mean, I've known this was coming for a while. Um, Uh A, because Fantasy Flight announced it (laughs) like two years ago and then promptly disappeared um, and B, because the announcement of ghost galaxy the new company that will be publishing the new version of keyforge uh was several months ago so we've known this is happening but we didn't actually have concrete details until just a few days ago uh the campaign on game found for keyforge um winds of exchange the new expansion uh will be going up on september 9th so that will be um, very soon. I guess when you're listening to this, probably three or four days. And 
yeah, it's it's been a while since we've had new Keyforge content. I think the last set came out in 2020, which was a terrible time for any competitive card game to come out. Um, uh, Mass Mutation. And we haven't had any content since because they, they said the algorithm broke, which makes sense because the whole concept of the game is that you're using an algorithm to build decks procedurally, and then you package those and ship them out. But also, it was Fantasy Flight who said it, and they've been canceling all of their properties and just making terrible decisions about games for about two years now. So no one was ever 100% sure if we're fixing the algorithm was actually true. Mm. It turned out it wasn't true because they sold it to somebody else. <laughs> wow. Wow. Then went and fixed the algorithm. Um, so, yeah, Ghost Galaxy... Um, the, the new company that's going to be publishing this is it's complicated, but basically it's being launched by Christian Peterson, the founder and former CEO of fantasy flight. It's his investment company and incubation firm that's launching it. Um, and the development director is Michael Hurley, who also worked at fantasy flight for a very long time. So these are the two of the people who worked at fantasy flight when fantasy flight was the top company in board games, right? Mm-hmm. They were the ones that we would, bang the doors down at Gen Con to get to. Um, unfortunately, now kind of, you know, a shell of its former self, but Ghost Galaxy's new, and that's awesome. So they're doing this campaign on GameFound, which some people are a little unsure about, but again, keep in mind, this is a new company, so they don't have all the funds, and it takes a lot of money to launch a new set, let alone, and you know, they're putting this out for the first time. Um, and it's exciting because again, it's been a couple of years. So, and, and the cool thing is too, if we're doing it on a crowdfunding site, we get all this extra stuff that we could theoretically pick up. Mm-hmm. I know I've seen a lot of people say, I don't want any of this stuff, which is fair. <laughs> I want decks of cards, which they've now added a, a tier to do that. Uh, but I'm all about the extra stuff. So I'm excited. Uh, so there's a two player starter set, which they, did once uh and then they hadn't done since then they did it for the first set fantasy flight did um so the two-player starter set is awesome for the game uh for new people to the game because it comes with two pre-built decks that are designed to be relatively balanced against each other and that way you can learn to play the game in a way where one person is not going to annihilate the other person because of the deck they have uh, i've been running into this playing keyforge with my son and he just likes to take random decks and sometimes his random deck is terrible <laughs> and he gets really mad <laughs> so having starter decks is great um there are other bonuses though you can get play mats they have new play mats for all the different um, factions they have um personalized decks that you can purchase so these are term- tournament legal decks that will integrate your name into the naming of the deck, uh, which is cool because all these random decks, they're all random, but they all have a unique card back, right? So the deck will be, you know, Emancipator of Fried Chicken or something will be the name of the deck, and every card will say that and have a custom symbol on the back. Um, And so now you you can buy one that has your name in it, which is kind of cool. And I know (laughs) they've done this in the past as like promo stuff. Um, Like I think they did it at Gamma at one point for retailers uh so it'll be exciting to see you can also get a personalized play mat um you can get all sorts of cool nylon figures so they're making like little toy versions of some of the characters which is awesome and then there's a plushie that used to be i think the only way you could get it before was to win a tournament uh, or do well enough in a tournament to get it and now you can get this as part of the crowdfunding campaign which i'm one million percent gonna do because it's a, a cute little octopus thing <laughs> um so yeah at the end of the day we've got more keyforge right and i won't rattle on about all the new stuff and changes in the actual game until the game is in hand and we can review it and discuss it um sure i'll put chris to sleep but <laughs> it's true uh i'm excited and i'm doubly excited because the last set that came out i couldn't play it with anybody i played it online for a little bit but there was no one around and all the stores were closed or not letting people inside mm, and stuff. Sure. So I have not played Keyforge in person with anybody in close to three years now. So the fact that it still exists and isn't dead, which 
these games often die and never come back. I'm very excited about. So that's launching this week. I will be backing it uh, when it goes up, and I'm excited mm-hmm. for when the cards come in. It's really cool that they found a way to get the game out. It, it's a solid game. Obviously, my favorite part is the wacky names of the deck, but you know you can't have everything. So I'm glad that this will get back out into circulation. I guess obviously, I think prior to the pandemic, collectible card games and organized events were really hard to get to the you know to the game store because there was so few game stores. There was a bunch of transitions. People were talking about game stores moving to like game cafes, and that was the future. And then that never really happened. And then the pandemic hit and it took out a lot of those little game stores. And I think that's the that's thing that we're they're going to have to look forward to in the future is, you know, how are they going to get these games in those kind of organized play events? I think that's the real thing because that's really when these games shine, when you have that. I, I think they're not as fun when it's just like two people. I think I'd like to see it like in a bigger venue, but I guess that's just what the conferences or, or conventions are there for now at this point. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, talk about a game that has pretty much <laughs> throwback mechanics that you've played a lot. This is a game that's currently on Kickstarter called Line Pirates, the race for the pirate throne. Line Pirates is a first-to-finish dice game for two to six players, a thrilling race for the pirate throne, which lasts about 10 to 15 minutes per player. So you probably figured it out just by the title alone. Lion Pirates is basically a game of liar's dice. So this is the, I guess, another version of the pirate lion dice kind of game. I I think Pirates of the Caribbean kind of made this mechanic very fun and very interesting and brought it out to like the populace. And there was, I think, a couple of different versions of this out there with like really cool cups. I think I have a, a pretty much a pretty slimmed down version of it, but Liar's Dice is something I actually do like. I don't actually play that very often, but it's a very simple game. If you haven't played Liar's Dice, super simple. You can probably put this together with a whole bunch of D6s that you already have. And basically you roll X number of D6s, you know, in a cup or something. So only you could see the results. And then everyone tries to outdo each other by saying like, I have two twos. Well, I have, you know, three fours. Okay. And then you keep going up and up until somebody calls someone's bluff that they're lying. And if they're lying, that person gets knocked out and you get a point. But if they're in fact telling the truth, then you get knocked out and they get a point. So it's kind of a press your luck game. It's fun. Um, as the game goes on, you lose dice because you're, you're getting caught and then eventually you have less opportunities to score. So they actually took that mechanic and built it into a board game. It's obviously about pirates, but primarily what you're going to be doing here is again, just, just as normal. You have that normal roll dice phase where you're going to play liar's dice and that'll allow you to kind of take pull position and actually allow you to move where someone else is going to lose that opportunity to do so. And then you're going to move your ships on this really kind of throwback pirate map looking board. And on each of those tiles, that's going to be a special event tile. So it allows you to win that event by doing that liar's dice kind of situation and, you know, to be able to do that goal. Now, sometimes that stuff's good. Sometimes that stuff is bad. Sometimes you get um, in combat with other ships that are on the same tiles, and then there's a whole set of different dice that you you roll in order to see who wins that combat. And then there's an action phase, and you have special action cards that will benefit you and hurt other people. What's interesting about the game is the board is module, so you'll be able to add and subtract and even add with their expansion a whole separate section to the board that expands it. And again, it allows you to play as liar's dice and deal with the different consequences of those locations. But basically, the game is about circum, you know, circumnavigating this board with all these different events and activities. And then whoever gets to the end first, you know, you, you score a win. Uh, this game looks really well produced. It's from a first-time designer, so keep that in mind. If you do want to pick up a copy of this with all its kind of fun stuff, you're, it's going to set you about about $64 and probably another $20 chip, uh, shipping. But if you really want to get the souped out version of this with all like the, the plastic ships and the metal coins and all that other kind of fun stuff, 
that's going to be $90, which is a lot of money for Liar's Dice. <laughs> but the production's really nice. It's currently on Kickstarter, and it's something that, you know, it's worth taking a look at at the very least. I think it's, you know, sometimes with those first-time designers, cost is a big thing for them. So if you're interested in a pirate-themed version of Liar's Dice with incredible production values from a first-time designer... You want to check it out on Kickstarter. It wraps up on Friday, September 30th, 2022. I mean, it looks pretty. It does. I, I don't know that I need a, a nearly $100 version of Wired's Dice. But, uh, <laughs> considering you can play it with like plastic cups and a big handful of dice. You can. Um, but you get cool little ships. You do. And, and the balloons. And, and yeah. yeah. Very it's a lot of these, you know, it's a lot of these things that we've seen with a lot of games. And I, I think we'll talk about this with um, Richard Garfield's list. Like there are solid mechanics out there. And if you could just build a game around tried and true mechanics that you've played all your life, like Liar's Dice, then you got you got yourself a game there, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly <laughs> enough, that's a thing that happened. All right. So that's what's happening with our acquisition disorders. Now onto the games that hit the table. So at our table this week, we're going to talk about one of my kind of like favorite all-time childhood kind of games. Well, I think it's more probably better IP, but a game that actually recently came out or a new version. So we just talked about how Liar's Dice was a mechanic of tried and true and they built a game around it. Well, take an IP that I grew up with, which is Scooby-Doo, take a game mechanic that's been around for quite some time and tried and true, which is the pandemic kind of system and you squish them both together and you produce it by Simon and you got a pandemic Scooby-Doo high production miniatures board game. So Scooby-Doo, the board game that came out in 2022, I think a lot of people had seen this out there. It was one of their like collection of games that were out there and available. And basically this is a family weight game. This is just something to play with new players who have never played kind of board games before or family or just you're a big Scooby-Doo fan. So basically in the game, and it's a relatively simple game, you are trying to fight the different ghosts or baddies or monsters, whatever it may be. Uh, Spoiler, it turns out to be an old man who's trying to uh, make money off a property. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of the Scooby-Doo stuff, right? It's, it's like a really cool monster. It turns out it's capitalism in the end. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, don't come at me. That's Scooby-Doo, okay? Go, go yeah, check yeah. it out yourself. I didn't make that up. So basically the game itself is, this is a cooperative game. So you will play one of the many Scooby-Doo characters and you could have a number of players at the table, or of course, since it's a pandemic-esque co-op game, you can play this game alone. So you'll pl- place your uh, your people out there. So of course, it's Scooby-Doo, it's Velma, it's Daphne, it's Fred, it's Shaggy. And you do have the Mystery Machine, which is a van that you can use three times during the game that will transport your characters around the board and drop them off in certain locations, a la kind of pandemic again. But basically in the game, there is one win condition, which is primarily you have to set up four different types of traps for the monsters. That's, again, a Scooby-Doo trope. So you have to collect certain items that match up with what's needed for the trap. So it's a very simplistic kind of set collection game. So on your turn, you're going to draw from a deck. There's going to be two cards, one card to play, one card in reserve. That card is going to have an action number, kind of like Gloomhaven has an action number. You will take cards for all your players. The monster gets a card as well. And there could be multiple monsters in the game. And basically, based upon the order, you take those actions. You move around the board. You do good things like collecting materials and setting up traps. The monsters do bad things like scaring away visitors to that particular location, adding monster tokens to the board, or actually taking cards away from the available card deck. So... If at any point all of the guests or visitors are scared away, you lose the game. If all the monster tokens in the areas are haunted, you lose the game. If all the cards run out, you lose the game. So you can scale this game up and down, which is nice because if you're playing with younger people, you might want to scale it down a little bit to make it a lot more simple. And if you're playing with more of a gamer set, you can make this as hard as possible, but still it's, it's a fairly simple game. This game does run into alpha game problems. I mean, you do get like an individual card to choose from. But honestly, 
it's pretty simple and straightforward. You need to get the tokens. You need to avoid the, the ghosts on the game board. And primarily, you're just trying to get as much of the resources you can for those four different traps and then set them up and then you win the game. The production here is top-notch. The board is good. The graphic design on the, the actual game board is a little messy. There's a lot of iconography on there. So if you do have new players, you might want to guide them through it a little bit. I mean, it's Scooby-Doo, so you have that kind of artwork. The miniature figures are fantastic. They're toy, toy quality. So if that's something that you want just for yourself or to add to some other games, I saw online a lot of people talked about using these figures at you know playing Betrayal on the House on the Hill or many other games. It's a fun, light, family, gateway game kind of game. It's like I said, it's a pandemic, dumbed-down version of this without like the major consequences. So it gets ever so lightly a play for me. This is obviously an IP that I grew up with. This is a mechanic that I actually like very well. Uh, Defenders of the Realm uses a more complex version of the pandemic system. This is the most simplistic version that I've ever seen in play before. But the production and everything else is very good. Everyone had fun at the table. And, you know, that's Scooby-Doo. Yeah, it looks cool. I remember when this campaign was up. And mm-hmm. it was a weird campaign because it was like the three games. And yes, I wasn't 100% sure what they were doing or why it cost what it cost. But it's cool to hear that like they capture the, the spirit of the IP because, you know, I don't know. It's Simon stuff is always, it's weird. <laughs> they it don't know. Right. Sometimes they really focus too much on the toy factor and, and not as much on the game factor. But yeah, this is, that works. This, yeah, the, the set that came out with this, you had the Scooby-Doo one, you had the Teen Titans Go, and you had the Looney Tunes. And this was certainly, uh, you were buying toys. I mean, there's just no way around it. I think before this, they had like Wacky Racers and they had a couple of other older IPs that were out there. And that was less good. Like the toy factor was less and the gameplay was less. The gameplay and the toys and everything here is certainly better. But you should not really pick up these games unless you are a big fan of the IP because these mechanics are used everywhere else better. You're picking up the toys to be able to play mechanics. So... I mean, I would say, I, I think like for this example here, it's definitely lighter and easier than your Funko game, your Funkoverse games, or your Marvel United games. Those are a little more complex than this. But, you know, again, it, you know, your your IP value will differ based upon what, what it is that you like and love so much. All right, everyone. So that's all the games that are hitting our table this week. Let's get on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about one of the greatest board game tabletop card game designers of all time. The man, the legend himself, Richard Garfield. Anthony, you, I know you've played a lot of these games going way back. Any any thoughts, feelings, uh, you know, maybe possibly he can adopt us at some point. I mean, how you feeling about our, our, uh, our daddy figure here, Richard yeah. Garfield? Yeah, no, I mean, it's. It's funny because I didn't know who he was until I got into hobby games 10 years ago, but I've been playing his games since I was nine years old. So Magic the Gathering came out in 1993 and it was immediately all around me. Like, And I was in over near Seattle too, so I was in, we were near Wizards of the Coast. And so the, the cards were a little bit more accessible even in those early days. Um, and it was like this weird, especially at that age, like this weird mystical magical thing that we would hear about mostly from the older kids mm-hmm. and couldn't really afford ourselves. Um, but anytime I got a chance to play or was in a hobby shop or was anywhere around the, the game in any meaningful way, um, it was always, it was just there. Right. And this was before any kind of hobby gaming, anything for me in life. So I never really went a hundred percent fully down the rabbit hole of magic, the gathering, but I've mm-hmm. dabbled a few times over the years. You dabbled um, in magic. I, I dabbled in magic, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I still had the cards that I dabbled with because they're probably worth <laughs> enough to pay off my mortgage at this point. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was a blast. And so then when I get into the, the hobby game scene in general, I'm like, oh, he makes other stuff, which just always feels weird. But there's a bunch of other stuff. Like, there's a lot of really good games. We just talked about one of them like 15 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, it's exciting to, to kind of run through and hopefully share some stuff people may either don't realize he made or just have never played. 
Yeah, I think the thing that's really interesting about our industry and it's changed a lot. Like once upon a time, it was very much, well, I guess if you want to go way, way back, it was about an individual board game designer, card game designer, miniature game designer, or what have you, designing a game and throwing their name on it, like an author. And then at some point you had a lot of these companies strip the designer name off their games. And now it was just like, Heroescape, like who produced this? We're not telling, but obviously, you know, we can find out now, but people, people produced it or like, and then obviously things came back around and then we, we talked about, or we used to talk about board gaming as designer board games. So people would be like, what's a designer board game? Like you have to explain like, Hey, there's an actual person behind this that designed this. This is their creation and they get credit for it. And it, again, it represents them in a major way. And it's just, we go on and on about it. And then recently, again, with so many of the different game studios out there, it's kind of, we've lost a lot of the kind of who is the game designer in this situation. So over the years, you know, when people would say Garfield, I was like, oh, the orange cat. And they're like, no, the game designer. I'm like, what? Like, yeah, but you know, you know, magic. And I'm like, oh, magic. Yeah. And then like, but you don't know that his name is on so many other games because you think that all of these people did a thing and then they just stopped at a thing. But in fact, the fact that all of these people are geniuses is because they've come up with so many amazing systems again and again. And it's not like they took the same thing and then just hit it 20 times with a, you know, a monopoly pace button. So this is a fantastic list. We're happy to share this with you. But uh, yeah, definitely, if you do love a game out there, check out the designer's other works because there's so much good stuff out there. So yes, uh, uh, Richard Garfield, uh, the man, the legend himself, Anthony, what is his number 10? All right, number 10 uh, on this list is a a cute, quiet little thing from Calliope Games called Hive Mind. It came out mm. in 2016. And it's a re-implementation of one of his older games, What Were You Thinking, that came out in 1998. And looking at Board Game Geek, um, there's a Sailor Moon version of this coming out later this year. Nice! So, that's cool. Um, <laughs> it's a party game about... It's, and you work in cooperatively to try to... I don't know, get figure out these different clues and basically come to a similar conclusion as each other. Um, so it's kind of like one of those guessing style thinking together type of games. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of those games in the Titans of gaming series that we were incredulous about all those years ago. Um, yes. When Calliope said, we're going to get the best gaming designers and they're all going to make family games. And they're all going to be amazing. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those. And it is actually, it's very good. So if, if you haven't had a chance yet, try out hive mind at number 10. All right. Number nine is Carnival of Monsters. This was an interesting game that was released by Amigo. Initially, it went up on Kickstarter, and they expected to get all the money for this. And and somewhat rightfully so, but they did not get all the money for this, so they canceled that. And then they had to come back around to this, which is... The game came out much, much later than anticipated. So basically, the Carnival of Monsters is about this royal monsterological society and about collecting the most rare monsters possible so all the monsters from different legends around the world so basically on your turn you're going to be going out there and you're going to be checking out all the different monsters in the variety of areas you're going to be collecting their lands and locations in order to be able to set traps for them and then you're going to be dealing with their monstrous intent and the amount of danger those different monsters have. So there's some dice rolling in the game to negate that uh, danger, or there's actually cages. So you can cage these dangerous creatures back. And then basically it comes down to like a Seven Wonders drafting kind of situation. So you'll have cards that'll have locations and uh, assistance and again, special abilities and locations. And you're just trying to match everything up and get the proper resources that you need in order to capture the biggest and the worst and the scariest monsters of all time. It's a fun little card board game. If you like that kind of Seven Wonders drafting, closing, dice rolling game, it's unique. And it just kind of got left out of the match, but it actually deserves a lot of attention. That's Carnival of Monsters. 
All right. Uh, number eight on the list is one of his earliest games after Magic, uh, The Great Del Moody from 1995. Mm-hmm. This game has been re-implemented several times, including Dilbert, uh, Corporate Shuffle, a couple years later. And it, it's a ladder-climbing hand management game. But it does a couple of things that are interesting in that genre. One, it plays up to eight people, which is a lot. Uh, like It's a big full table game. And two, it has this whole concept of becoming the Great Del Moody, which changes the play order based on who wins individual rounds. So you're going to have a hand of cards um, out of an 80-card deck. They're numbered 1 to 12, and the number on the card is how many of those cards are in the deck. And you will play out a certain number of those cards to the center of the table, and people have to match how many cards you've played. And, and you're just trying to shed your deck and get rid of everything. Um, so if you've played any other ladder climbing games, it's basically that, but with a uniquely constructed deck and a larger player count, which, uh, makes it a lot of fun. We played this a fair amount at, uh, Myriad back in the day and had a lot of fun with it. So that is number eight, the great Del Moody. Number seven is Treasure Hunters or Treasure Hunter, excuse me here. This is from Queen Games from our friend Richard Garfield. And this is a really interesting kind of fun gateway game. I mean, we throw that term around a lot, but this is definitely fits in that route. So you are trying to track down all the most amazing treasures possible. And again, this is kind of a selection action taking game. And you are trying to put together what you can based upon a drafting system. So some of that is protecting you from baddies. So you want to get some support. Sometimes that's leaving or passing on some negative cards to other people. And in fact, it's just managing your hand, doing your set collections as proper, and collecting the most amount of loot and treasure that you can put together. It's a fun game, and it's a lot of fun for, you know, families and people who just like a very small kind of tight, closed drafting system where they can collect really great cards and has some really fun artwork too. That's Treasure Hunter. All right, number six on the list is Netrunner. Uh, this game is basically the sci-fi follow-up to Magic. came out in 1996 um, with Wizards of the Coast, same company as Magic. And it's we all know it now based on the re-implementation in the LCG format with Android Netrunner, but the original version was a collectible card game. Uh, so the two players would each get to play the Corp and the Runner in each game. And so it was asymmetrical where you're one side is trying to hack in and the other one's trying to fight back. Um, but the game itself was, I don't know, it, it it's hard to describe the original way this game played, especially because of the collectible format, trying to get the right cards to build your decks. But it's the cards were not the core focus, right? You could do things by messing with the rules or adjusting uh the win conditions based on what cards you've played out and how the game basically unfolds in front of you. Um, And a lot of those elements were taken into Android Netrunner when the LCG was remade. Um, That game, however, was not strictly made by Andrew Richard Garfield. It was worked on with Lucas Litzinger and fantasy flights development team um, starting in 2012. And that game alone is one of the best card games ever made using that asymmetrical system using the the runners and the corpse and having all these different potential decks that you could build out. Um, but it all started in 1996 with Netrunner and Wizards of the Coast. And here's hoping eventually, assuming they still hold that IP, they bring it back in some form. Uh, number six, Netrunner. Number five is Robo Rally. So Robo Rally is kind of the quintessential programming game. You've seen this a lot at conventions. You've seen this played pretty much everywhere. It's all about these robots that are kind of dealing with this insane obstacle course, but primarily it comes down to the programming element. So you'll play a card, everyone plays their card simultaneously, and then all the action takes place. The board itself has a lot of different features to kind of speed you up, block you, cause damage to you, repair you, and then you're dealing with all of the other robot competitors that can even add an additional challenge to your gameplay. So as those cards are kind of resolved, you turn left, you turn right, you move forward, you move back, you deal with uh, lasers and factory elements throughout, and hopefully you are able to get to the other side of the board in one piece. Again, 
if you're looking for the kind of quintessential boil down, you know, programming element with really cute, adorable little robots, that's Robo Rally. Number four is Bunny Kingdom from 2017. Uh, this is a drafting game and an area control game kind of mushed together. So every round you're going to take a big old hand of cards and you're going to choose which ones you want to keep and you're going to pass it around and you're going to keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this like any good drafting game. <laughs> and then based on those cards, you're going to place bunnies on the, this world map. And the map is a big grid of squares that is represented by mountains and fields and ocean or rivers or lakes, whatever they are. Um, and you're trying to create little fiefdoms of bunnies <laughs> and they're going to score based on the number of bunnies and towers in that space and the number of resources that you can produce. So if your little group produces four different types of resources and you have five towers, then you score 20 points for that little group. Um, you're going to score several times throughout the game because each time you cycle the deck, you will score intermittently. And so if you build a good little bunny fiefdom early on, it'll score multiple times throughout the game, even as you grow it. Um, there are all sorts of different point scoring cards in the deck. So you're going to end the game with like between 10 and 20 or 30 different um, bonus objectives and scoring cards on top of just the area control element. There's no way to remove each other's bunnies, which is why I love it so much because I love area control. People <laughs> undoing my turns. It's the worst thing you can do in a game. Um, <laughs> and it's cute. The artwork is spectacular. It's little bunnies doing all sorts of crazy uh, my favorite is still uh, the 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 bunny in the kilt, you know, running down the hill <laughs> to take on um, the king. So yeah, Bunny Kingdom, fantastic game. There's an expansion for it as well that adds a whole like little sky island that you can build on as well. Um, yeah, one of one of the better family accessible um, area control type games out there. Our number three game is King of Tokyo. This is one of my favorite games of all time. I remember playing this back when it originally came out. We talked about this a little bit earlier where you take a tried and true mechanic. In this case, King of Tokyo uses the Yahtzee mechanic where you'll be rolling a fistful of dice. And based upon rolling numbers, you gain victory points or fame in this case. Or you get claws and you attack all the players on the board or you can get energy, or you can heal up. It just gives you that kind of really fun, you know, press your luck element to it with the Yahtzee mechanic. The actual gameplay itself, you get one of these kind of crazy monsters. There's been 19 expansions and way, way more monsters than you could <laughs> shake a stick at. So you get this little cardboard cutout, and you start outside of Tokyo, but as the game goes on, you'll find yourself in Tokyo. If you're in Tokyo, you could slap everyone else around, becomes a king of the hill kind of situation. And throughout the game, you just really want to score as many points as possible. If you, whoever gets to 20 points first wins the game. Or you could try another route. You can knock everybody out, King of the Hill style. And if you knock everyone else in the game, you win. It's got that classic cartoony, I guess, throwback kind of like Godzilla with all the kind of wacky kind of monsters in the game. It's fun. And it, all of the different expansions have only added to the game. It's added... I won't say more complexity, but more ways to utilize the dice and special abilities. There's like Halloween costumes and there's power-up cards that make your monsters unique. So it's a lot of fun and definitely highly recommended. Find the version that works best for you, King of New York or the new Halloween editions that are out there. And I think they're coming out with a new Volcano Island edition. So we'll find more information about that. But you definitely should give this a try. Even if you're a hardcore gamer, there's a lot to be found in King of Tokyo. All right, number two on the list is Keyforge. You knew it. You knew it had to be Keyforge. <laughs> uh, this is the unique deck game, in which you buy a deck of cards, you cannot change it in any way, and you play it as it comes. Um, there's a set list of cards that are available in each release of the game, of which there have been several, uh, starting in 2018 with Call of the Archons. And you find a way to play that deck effectively. There's three different houses in each deck, and when you take a turn, you don't have to pay resources. You don't have to have mana or anything like that. You just play all the cards that you have of a single house because you can only play one house per turn. Um, the goal is to complete three keys before your opponent does. You do that by 
generating amber, which is the resource in the game. And that's pretty much it. It's a tug of war two player card game, like many of Richard Garfield's other games, but taking out the collectible element to a degree because people still buy decks in bulk. <laughs> I have a way, way more decks than I would ever need uh, to play this game. But um, yeah, Keyforge is fantastic. I'm really excited it's back. Summer two. And our number one Richard Garfield game should not be a surprise to anyone here. Of course, it's got to be Magic the Gathering, which came out in 1993 and has literally all the fame in the world. I mean, there's so many things to say about this system. It's a collectible card game with over 20,000 cards that you can kind of put together different decks, the Planeswalkers, all the different variations, all the different colors of decks that you could put together, the Secondary Market, the Black Lotus, the ESPN gameplay, the fact that Magic the Gathering is honestly in large part responsible for so many game stores staying in business because without their organized play events, I don't know if a lot of those stores that we know and love would actually be able to be there to this day. Again, this has been an insane undertaking. I know it's just not Richard Garfield, but it's Richard Garfield and so many other people who have put together this unbelievable game system that's constantly updated, loved by everybody, and still is as relevant as it was when it first came out, even more so. I mean, this is just a a, a gigantic monolith when it comes to board gaming. I mean, again, just random people who do not know anything about modern board gaming. You say Magic the Gathering to them, they get it. You say Black Lotus to them, like, why would they get that? Some of them are going to get that too. So I don't know, Anthony, there's so much more to say about this. This could certainly be several episodes talking about Magic the Gathering. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, no, and I think you've captured what is really the core behind this. It's iconic, right? If you don't know anything else about hobby gaming, you know about this particular aspect of the hobby, Mm -hmm. right? Most game stores run on magic money, you know? It's the reason we have friendly local game stores is Magic the Gathering. It's the reason we have any collectible card game sure. is Magic the Gathering. It was the one that blew it wide open and showed everybody how to do it. It set the business model. It showed that the game could work over years, that it could iterate and develop over time. Um, you know, And it, it's not for everyone because of that collectible element, and sure. that's understandable. But for those who enjoy it and who go in on it, and you could... That's your that's your whole gaming life, right? You're just building decks and playing with things and collecting the cards and going to tournaments. There's so much here. The culture of it is so amazing. And it's just seeing a company be able to pull that off, like Wizards of the Coast has been able to support that game for almost 30 years, where other companies can't make it two or three before they throw in the towel. It's just mm-hmm. so impressive. I know it's a lot of money they make, but at the same time, it's probably still hard work, right? You have to manage oh, yeah. all you got to manage all the developers. You got to manage all the events, and they do that, and they've made it work. Um, you know, so yeah, Magic the Gathering. Yeah, it's, it's its own industry. It's its own thing above and beyond anything that tabletop gaming has come out with. So many of the iconic mechanics that we know and love today, like deck building, hand management, interrupting you know other players, or just even tapping a card. I think tapping a card was. That was IP protected, right, Anthony, at one point? Or for a long time? I think it still is. is. Is it still is? You can't tap a card? Wow. It's trademarked. So they own that phrase. Crazy. So again, so many other board games and card games out there owe so much to Magic the Gathering, as do we all. Because again, even if you never played it, it's had an, an amazing impact in our industry and still an amazing game. And again, if you've never tried it, you should definitely should. I mean, again, of course, it's amazing and it's addictive and it's costly, but I, I think you can get together and play a very simple starter deck and just give it a whirl. I think it's a lot of fun. All right, everyone. So that's everything for this time. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.